Welcome to the Africa Tech Summit podcast, sharing insights from across the African tech scene. Today's episode is part of our Africa Climate Tech Summit series, which is kindly supported by Mercy Core Ventures and Pure Carbon in partnership with the 6th D. Stay tuned for great insights and a discount code to join us at the Africa Climate Tech Summit in Nairobi. My name is Boko Nyundo, founder of the 6th D. In today's episode, we're exploring impact investing to enhance the livelihoods and climate resilience in Africa with Rebecca Mincy, Investment Director at the Acumen Resilient Agriculture Fund. Welcome, Rebecca. If you could please introduce yourself to our audience and give us some background to your role at the Acumen Resilient Agriculture Fund. Sure. I am uh, Rebecca Mincy. I'm the Investment Director of the Acumen Resilient Agriculture Fund. We are a $58 million impact VC fund, and we focus on investing in fast-growing agribusinesses that help smallholder farmers adapt to climate change in East and West Africa. And I'm very happy to be here. Well, thank you, Rebecca. Perhaps uh, just to uh, kickstart our conversation, if you could give us, if you like, the big picture and uh, give us a sense of uh, the key macro trends significantly influencing agricultural productivity and food security across Africa, given the focus of um, uh, the, f- the fund you represent? What's the challenge? What's happening now? Essentially, no one is a stranger to the changes in climate that are happening. And unfortunately, those living in developing markets are set to disproportionately feel the impact of climate change. Um, particularly um, as it relates to drought, flooding, um, pestilence, and the like. The narrative for the last couple of years has been clear, even though CO2 emissions has largely been attributed to developed markets. um, The impact of those CO2 emissions has disproportionately fallen on developing countries. And so what we're seeing now because of El Nino, La Nina, um, and of course, uh, some of the other, uh, you know, weather patterns, um, we're seeing yields go down. We're seeing drought, we're seeing excess flooding, we're seeing locusts um, come in and, and really wreak havoc on an already, already vulnerable agricultural system um, in Sub-Saharan Africa. And in order to address that, um, the Acumen Resilient Agriculture Fund um, is essentially looking at um, commercial-based ways to support farmers, to support food security, to um, provide adaptive solutions to farmers and to the broader agricultural value chain on how to um, manage your yields, how to manage your income, how to access the goods and services that you need um, in, in light of a changing climate. And I think it's worth noting that um, what we are looking at is not CO2 uh, emissions reduction. We have a sister fund called Kawasaki Ventures that focuses on reducing the amount of CO2 um, or providing alternate solutions um, for CO2 um, emissions reductions. Our focus is on helping farmers to become better farmers in the context of a changing climate. We accept the fact that um, climate change is here. Um, we accept that it is well underway. Um, but what can farmers do, particularly smallholder farmers do, 
um, who actually provide the overwhelming majority, about 80% of the food um, that is consumed, certainly in sub-Saharan Africa, is provided by smallholder farmers. So what can we do in order to support those farmers um, in the context of a changing climate? No, thank you, Rebecca. And, and, and the the challenges that have been manifold and, and looking specifically at agriculture with the conflict in the, the Russian-Ukraine, that's had an impact on developing countries too, given that the conflicts obviously had an impact on uh, two of the world's leading leading producers of uh, foodstuff like wheat. Um, I, I guess... Uh, our audience will benefit uh, for those that, that don't know uh, the detail of your work. Um, some context as to the types of agribusinesses that the Acumen Resilient Agriculture Fund currently invests in. Are you in a position to share some context as to the types of companies that you support? Sure, happy to. Um, so Acumen, the impact investor has been investing in agriculture for, gosh, 20 years now. Um, and when we developed the strategy for this fund, ARAF, um, it was really built upon the lessons learned, some of the tough tough lessons that we've learned about investing in agriculture across the world. And so our investment thesis is reflective of that. And so what does that mean? So practically speaking, we invest in uh, what we call platform businesses. So these are businesses that provide... Um, uh, uh, multiple solutions to smallholder farmers. Um, for example, maybe they're providing a better input, a better seed. Maybe they're also providing a guaranteed market for the sale of that particular crop once it's actually grown. What we will not do is invest in a company that just provides one service. So we would not invest in a seed company, for example, that's just selling seeds to farmers, even if those seeds are hybrid and they, you know, double, double yields. Um, we, through our experiences, have learned that um, those sort of what we call single input companies, um, they have their own set of risks, obviously, um, but we really think about companies that are um, putting their arms around the entire farming experience. So they're providing better inputs, they're providing farmer training, they're providing market offtake, they're providing financing. Those businesses are more likely um, to improve the overall quality of life of the farmers, but they also tend to be more commercially viable because you have more than one touch point with the farmer. Um, you're able to kind of generate more than one um, um, you know, revenue generation point from the farmer without incurring the additional customer acquisition costs that some of the single input companies do. Um, so we look for companies that are, um, I'd probably say mid right, mid size, proof of concept definitely should be there. Um, and we look for a really strong management team. We look for companies that have the ability to scale across either multiple geographies, or for example, they can penetrate very deeply a very large market. So for example, we might, we have invested in a Pan-African poultry company. Um, so there is broad, a, a broad um, kind of geographical scope there. But we've also invested in a company in Nigeria where the market is massive. Um, um, and we are looking for kind of very, 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 very deep penetration within that broader market. So we have some flexibility on geography, but specifically we're investing in Kenya, Uganda, Nigeria, and Ghana. Um, and we are looking for fast-growing agribusinesses. Um, 
um, in these markets that we believe have the ability to 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 scale while also providing a, a value added uh, climate adaptive solution to smallholder farmers. Interesting. Um, with your focus on platforms, that also helps um, address how um, solutions that provide integrated um, uh, support to the farmer tend to have a much more enduring impact on their livelihoods. Um, I, I, I noticed it at, at, at ground level with um, the demonstration farm I've got in Western Kenya, where we, for example, uh, looked at aquaculture and, and uh, literally d- dug up four fish ponds to begin um, farming tilapia. Um, but one of the challenges we very soon came across was uh, st- cold storage and trying to get the, the the fish to markets beyond our immediate locality, for example, into Kisumu, where, uh, which represent, represented more, um, a, a much larger market uh, to, 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 to sell into. But we simply can get the fish down there because we didn't have any cold storage facilities and it would have called for investing in, in, uh, in a pickup truck and some fridges on the back of it, which was beyond our, 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 our capital base as a small, small charity. But, um, but that's interesting uh, around looking at platforms and seeing if there's a sort of multiplier effect from, from supporting businesses that do more than, uh, just a single input. Um, I guess uh, in, in, in giving us some sense of the geographical uh, scale and focus, um, are, are there any particularly distinct uh, differences between, I mean, you mentioned Nigeria, Kenya, Uganda and Ghana, so East and West Africa, in terms of uh, your your investment thesis and, 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 and how you work? Are there particularly, even if anecdotal stories, as to the differences you found in operating um, and supporting businesses operating in, in in West versus East Africa that you might be able to share. No, I think it's a it's a it's a good question, and I think um, you know we chose these companies or sorry these countries very strategically because there were more similarities than there were differences. Um, and as I I'm I'm really kind of banging my head to try to think through some of the differences. Sometimes there are differences in in uh, kind of land allocation, so a smallholder farmer might, you know, in a place like um, in a place like even take Kenya for example, it's it's very specific. Um, so if you maybe you're in Western Kenya, the average you know plot size might be one hectare. You go to the coast of Kenya, and the average plot size might be ten hectares because of how the government divided the land a generation or two generations ago. Um, so there are differences. Um, I would say in terms of, um, you know, the, the, the land size, which can be geographical, but sometimes it's not. Um, maybe some of the other differences might be what farmers are accustomed to growing. As you can imagine, in West Africa, um, cocoa is, um, is, 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 is certainly, um, you, know, uh, you know, well understood there as a crop. Um, and of course, in East Africa, you're going to have very, very well understood crops um, as well. I think, you know, dairy also in East Africa is big. <laughs> While the rest of the world is moving away from cow's milk, um, East Africa continues to have a very strong um, consumer appetite for cow's milk. Mm-hmm. So there are these, like, I would say subtle differences. 
Um, you know, obviously the cultures are very different, but in terms of like farming and agriculture and livestock, the issues um, are very similar across East and West Africa, you know, not having sufficient inputs, meaning either poor quality seeds or for livestock, maybe they don't have the right breeds um, that are optimized for, for, for the local market and for productivity. Um, there is a dearth of, of, of farmer training. Um, very few countries are able to afford to train farmers. Um, and there are very few, if any, quite frankly, um, you know, trading centers. There are agricultural programs, but, you know, you have to essentially go to college in order to be trained in agronomy, which is, uh, you know, can be very expensive for some. Um, you know, financing challenges are, are there as well. Um, the banks across East and West Africa are, you know, they favor kind of higher returns, quite frankly, rather than venturing in deeply into into agriculture and the risk reward profile that goes along with that. Um, and then finally, again, very, very similar is um, these very, very fragmented markets. A farmer, you know, may have like place to sell whatever he or she is growing. Um, they may not. They may have to um, deal with excessively lower prices that basically don't cover their cost of planting and, and harvesting. Um, so uh, we found that there are far more similarities between the smallholder and the smallholder kind of subsector of agriculture um, across East and West Africa than there are differences. Interesting. Join us at the Africa Climate Tech and Investment Summit in February, part of Africa Tech Summit Nairobi, where African tech connects. Please visit africatechsummit.com forward slash Nairobi for more details and use discount code GREEN, that's G-R-E-E-N, and receive a discount off delegate passes. Well, thanks for that. And, and uh, with regards to training, I, I, I'd imagine the strategic partnerships you, you, you form at, um, at Acumen uh, help uh, at least go some way to, to, to addressing the gap in as far as uh, your strategic partners, partners, partners might contribute more than uh, solely, solely financial capital. But could you, could you, could you give us a, a little bit of background to the various strategic partnerships that the Acumen Resilient Agriculture Fund enjoys, and and that may be enduring and established relationships that uh, Acumen as an entity has had for decades, or maybe recently established ones that perhaps the market's not uh, as aware of. Um, Give us a little background to the strategic partnerships you formed. Sure. So Acumen has a host of, of, you know, relationships um, that they have uh, really built and nurtured over the last 20 years, specifically for the Acumen Resilient Agriculture Fund. I would say our most strategic relationships are the people um, and the institutions that have invested in ARAF. So just for a bit of context, we are sponsored by Acumen, but we are anchored by the Green Climate Fund. Um, they are phenomenal partners to us. Um, they, you know, um, certainly um, act as pro- providers of investment capital, first loss capital, but they also provide a technical assistance exclusively for farmer training. Um, we also have um, other DFIs as part of our um, group of investors, which include FMO, the Dutch DFI, as well as Proparco, the French DFI. Um, as well as having relationships with several family offices uh, across Europe and the U.S., um, as well as some international foundations, including um, the Soros Economic Development Fund, as well as the Children's Investment Fund Foundation. And so those partnerships for us um, are, are primary 
quite frankly. And we have been able to be introduced to um, a number of um, capacity building elements, particularly around ESG and climate. Um, we've also worked with them on technical assistance, which is non-dilutive, basically grant capital for our portfolio companies um, that they have been able to facilitate through their relationships. Um, so I would say those are probably the the partnerships, if you will, that come directly through our the investors in ARAF. Our companies, however, are really quite adept at connecting with and um, connecting with and building relationships there on the ground. Um, we have seen um, support and partnerships with the likes of GIZ, Solidary Dodd, um, TechnoServe, and I'm sure there are others that I'm missing that have worked with our portfolio companies in kind of a three-way supportive manner, um, either providing capital, sorry, expertise or grant capital, um, and of us providing the equity that we provide, um, along with the company kind of spearheading these different initiatives. Uh, we found that those partnerships are quite impactful uh, to the company um, as it tries to continue to provide these these wraparound services uh, to the smallholder farmers in the areas where they work and, and that delivers the the integrated service that you're you're, you're big on beyond the single input type um, operations so. yeah I think it, it helps not just with kind of the, it, it's a deeper integration so yes there's integration in terms of like what happens with with uh, farmers and making sure that the services that are provided support integration but I think what it also does is that for these companies they're these are quite early stage companies and they tend to need a lot of support in order to launch them to being you know scalable businesses across multiple geographies and so what our partners do, is that um, some of them will be supportive and provide training to farmers. Some of them provide, again, capital. Maybe it's, um, you know, a grant capital, grant capital to support a consultant coming in to may maybe do some market scoping, maybe to provide ESG support, uh, excuse me, for, for some of the companies. Um, maybe they are providing, you know, um, data integration support. Maybe they're providing um, support around a particular pilot that a company wants to test out before it rolls out a broad expansion plan. So our partners serve a number of different, um, uh, uh, I guess, support services for our companies. Um, we're very grateful uh, to them because it, it really does take a village in order to um, have the impact, the desired impact that we are all hoping for. That's brilliant. and and. I'm sure it takes a while to build that the the, the trust that uh, you you desire in those relationships. But once they're formed, then they endure and they 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 they, they will almost have that multiplier effect in terms of the difference they make for the smallholder farmer on the ground in in any of the countries in which you you you, you focus. Um, specifically, looking at climate change and and how your funds approach helps smallholder farmers adapt to the myriad changes that are either already happening or are set to happen um, uh, from a climate perspective. Uh, give us a bit of context as to how you embed or ensure that what you're doing, i.e. the capital deployment, is having a measurable impact return in terms of enabling the smallholder farmer to adapt to the changes in 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 the climate sure. in their local area. 
Sure, happy to. Um, and I think, you know, this is one of the things that we do a little bit differently than some of the other funds out there. So true to our acumen roots, we are um, very, very committed to measuring impact. And so at the during the architecture of the fund for ARAF, what essentially we have done is that we have worked with a third party to create a um, measurement tool. Um, it's basically a survey and a framework um, that helps us to track whether or not our farmers are becoming more climate resilient as a result of working with our portfolio companies. So every year we, uh, we do a baseline survey um, for new companies coming into our portfolio. And then every year we usually, um, we usually survey about, you know, one, I'd say a thousand to 1500 farmers across a third of our portfolio companies to try to understand, are they becoming more climate resilient over time? And so how do we figure that out? We ask a series of questions, about 40 questions that are asked, um, where we try to understand what they know and what they're using. So for example, are you, do you know about um, crop insurance? Are you using crop insurance? Sometimes are you using crop, ins crop insurance all the time? And so um, that's just one dimension that we, or one, one question that we might ask. We also ask about zero tilling. We ask about use of organic fertilizers. We also ask about access to storage, which goes to your example, Boko. Yeah. With regard to um, with regard to aquaculture and coal storage, so we ask a series of questions that we know tie directly to determining whether or not a farmer is climate resilient. Um, and once we do ask those questions, then um, our we'll get a composite score to see whether or not the farmers that are working with this particular company. Are they vulnerable? Are they resilient? Are they emerging? We have four categories and we track. Um, over time, it's, you know, we've only been around for three years, so it's still early days in our data collection, but we do track whether or not a, the farmers that work with a particular company are becoming more or less climate resilient over time based upon those scores. And the good news is that we are able to see changes in climate resilience across a few different areas. So when we see companies really um, provide more farmer training, we see farmers not only knowing about, but also using these skills um, to generate higher higher yields. So um, we are, I think, in a fairly enviable position to be able to say that, yes, we are tracking changes in climate resilience over time um, with our farmers to, to basically to see if we're doing what we set out to do both which is to help farmers be become more climate resilient. That's superb. And, and, and even for a farmer to respond to that survey it is in itself educating him or her as to what, what, what's around the corner for them uh, or other things that they can invest time and uh, money in, uh, making their operations that much more robust so it's it, it, just participating in the survey can be uh, enlightening uh, for the person that's, on the ground as well that's that's very true we consider the surveys so we do a climate resilience survey we also do an overall farmer well-being survey which is where we ask some questions like you know did your yields increase did your quality of life increase did your income increase etc so we do have a, an additional data point um, we combine that and then we look at it as a feedback loop to the company and a feedback loop to us in terms of what work it was what is working and what's not working um, and where the company may want to consider focusing its efforts 
efforts moving forward and um, also thinking through using this feedback loop to understand how our fund, ARAF, can be more supportive to the company to help them to meet the identified needs in the data collection um, and the, the analytics that result from that data collection. Fantastic. Um, I mean, lo- lo- looking ahead in the next few years, and I don't want to put a number on it because uh, that's not uh, necessarily the important thing. Uh, anticipations around the climate challenge in Africa um, and how that's set to change over over time. Um, uh, is, is, is your forecast around climate change on the ground in the countries you operate in shifting the fund's approach to fundraising or shifting the fund's approach to investment decision-making um, as you seek to identify the companies and deploy capital into them that are scaling solutions that 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 will ultimately help address food insecurity on the continent. Are, are, are there any things that you can see around the corner from a climate change point of view that are uh, shifting your investment thesis? Um, I would say nothing that's really shifting our investment thesis, except for the fact that um, one thing that has become clear over the last two years um, and is really important in our portfolio is water, water, water. Um, we, we would not fund an investment that didn't have a substantial water solution embedded in the business model. And maybe it's drip irrigation, maybe it's solar irrigation, um, maybe it's digging boreholes, um, who knows. But there needs to be in every company some sort of, particularly if it's an agro agro processing company, um, there needs to be some sort of mechanism that facilitates the access to water for smallholder farmers. Um, even um, you know, it dramatically changes what types of crop you're able, crops you're able to grow. It dramatically de-risks farming for you, um, increases your income not just from agriculture but also water is important from a livestock productivity standpoint. Building on my dairy example earlier. Um, in the dry season, um, particularly here in Kenya, milk productivity or uh, goes down quite a bit. Um, and so we do want to make sure that uh, water is built into as best as possible, um, built into uh, the business model as much as we can. Obviously, this does, that does not make sense for for a tech company per se. Um, that might be outside of their purview, but if there is a way to create, you know, tech products or financial products, um, that support the provision of water, be it from a financing standpoint or, you know, something like that, then we're very, um, open to and will push companies, um, to be thinking about the importance of water and, and how it fits within their business model. Yeah. And that's particularly resonant in East Africa, given the droughts, uh, of, of impact, impact of that particular region um and and yes water is, is is so fundamental to, to 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 life um and 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 if you're encouraging anyone that's approaching you uh for support to to consider that aspect um of of, of the work they do then inevitably you're going to have a much more um it, there's going to be much more impact from uh, working with them uh, and from the work they do to support their end beneficiaries. Um, uh, with regards to tech and digital transformation generally, um, how, how is that influencing uh, your investment thesis? How is that influencing how you approach investment decision-making within 
the fund. Are, are you seeing any developments in the tech arena that uh, influencing how you make decisions around who you uh, collaborate with? Um, I think from a tech standpoint, um, you know, ag tech, we've seen some really great innovations around ag tech and where we struggle sometimes is around mm, cost and unit economics and scalability. Um, there are a lot of tech solutions that are out there, um, particularly in the ag tech space, but they're a little too um, maybe expensive or not quite fit for purpose for the smallholder market. Um, we've seen drones and, you know, IoT smart farming and, and lots of, you know, just really interesting hydroponics, aquaponics and so on. Really, really interesting innovations out there. Um, but, you know, for a, you know, for a low income farmer, for a smallholder farmer, they're not quite fit for purpose. And so one of the things I would say that we struggle with that we're always looking for real innovations around is, you know, for the data that companies do have access to, how are they using it? First of all, are they digitized? Um, are they, you know, is, is all the information that they have um, and how much more can they get on the location of a farmer, what he or she is growing, um, how much uh, feed and inputs are they buying? Um, we want to make sure or encourage our companies as much as possible to digitize the data that they do have. Um, because once they digitize that information, then their business intelligence skyrockets. They now know, okay, um, you know, if this farmer is buying, um, you know, maize now, maize seeds now, they're also going to be buying fertilizer. Can we make sure that the fertilizer is where it should be or offer some offer again some sort of bundle solution to reflect what we know about consumer behavior? Um, and so once you're able to kind of move from digitization, then move to business intelligence, then all the fancy kind of data words that are being thrown around now, um, like artificial intelligence and machine learning, um, those things are actually quite possible. Um, you know, what we are hoping for, you know, we see, we do get a lot of our um, business plans that promise to use, um, you know, artificial intelligence that promise to use machine learning. And look, I think that that, that is, that is coming. Um, but by the time we invest, um, which again is very early, the path to be able to really use, um, access that, that much data, first of all, um, and then to be able to use it is a bit far-fetched. So what we're really looking for in companies from a, and how this informs our investment thesis is that we're really looking for more tech-enabled companies rather than like pure play ag tech companies. And so what this means is that we're looking for companies that have integrated tech through as much of their solution at their their business offering as possible. So if you, you know, case in point, we have a company in our portfolio called Farmerline, which is a Ghanaian ag tech company, and they're using farmer data to be able to support them on the input provision side to support agrovets, um, to provide extensive farmer training, and also to be able to do market offtake, again, on the back of um, the access to to farmer data that they do have. So again, it is, it is very, very integrated across the entire entire the entire business model and so that level of integration we're looking for with companies that um, we might um, want to invest in in the future useful clarification of the tech enabled company versus a pure play tech tech business and how you're thinking through the challenge from the perspective of the smallholder farmer and the utility that they're actually looking for today um and and uh, I, uh, my, my may i ask a 
in regards to threats, and here I'm looking uh, beyond or not solely at climate change, but thinking about the threats you envisage as a fund to really successfully delivering the outcomes you desire. Um, what comes to mind as threats or barriers to your success, and they may not be solely, you know, the 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 the, the climate challenge uh, facing your small small older farmers, but it may be other aspects of your your business model, um, and and how are you navigating that threat or those threats in order to uh, achieve the success that you're clearly achieving over the last few years. Sure, I think. The, probably the biggest threat to what we're trying to do is not having enough capital being directed into climate adaptation. An enormous amount of money has gone towards climate mitigation, CO2 emissions reductions. Um, that has been uh, kind of part and parcel of the narrative around climate change for quite some time. And it is important to be clear. Um, but by all kind of scientific, you know, um, projections, um, emissions reduction is not going to be enough. Um, and so, uh, there needs to be more capital directed towards climate adaptation, um, and also carbon sequestration. So removing carbon from the atmosphere, obviously, um, farming is closely related to that, particularly if it's done properly. Um, but I think the biggest, the biggest hurdle for us is going to be, um, finding and, you know, building relationships with investors who are comfortable with the risk of investing in climate and ag. Um, climate in and of itself is a risk. Ag in and of itself is a risk. And so you combine that. And there's a bit of complexity there. Um, but I think for us, where we are really hoping to, uh, you know, based upon our current performance, uh, what we're hoping to do is really catalyze as much additional capital. So not just DFIs, but also commercial capital to catalyze as much capital into the climate adaptation space as possible. Because quite frankly, we don't have time. Um, smallholder farmers already are experiencing, um, you know, issues with climate change. They are very, very well aware of it, um, and they are largely unprepared and don't have the tools that they need um, in order to be able to uh, have a fighting chance. And so the more capital that comes into the investment space um, is where we are, you know, where the real need is and one of the biggest barriers to us being able to achieve what we hope to achieve at scale. So uh, the access to capital challenge and perhaps made that much more challenging post-COVID and during today's particularly intense inflationary environment, perhaps access to that capital has become that that much more difficult. But um, right. but the need is is ramping up, uh, and everyone everyone knows it, no matter which part of the global uh, business or societal ecosystem you sit in. Well. This has been fascinating listening to you, Rebecca, and thank you very much for sharing your thoughts with us. And it will be interesting to monitor the work of your fund going forward. Uh, I guess my, my final question is more of a fun question, perhaps. Um, let's imagine in, say, 10 or 20 or even 50 years from now, Africa successfully transitions to net zero without any of the apocalyptic outcomes that many envisage. Um, what picture or what image comes to mind about Africa in that vision uh, or, or, or dream? Sure. I think that with the with COVID, with the war in the Ukraine, which you mentioned before, with a uh, changing 
uh, kind of political dynamic between uh, kind of the East and the West that Africa is very well positioned to act as I act as a diversification or a diversified destination, um, particularly as it relates to food security, as it relates to um, employment, particularly youth employment, as it relates to manufacturing um, and, and a myriad of other myriad of other um, sectors. And so, you know, what would make me happy to see in 20 years, 30 years, 50 years is a more level playing field where, um, um, you know, Africa is an integrated economy beyond just, you know, raw materials, uh, agriculture, beyond just tourism, um, beyond just natural resources, I would say, but really is providing um, and playing at a more integrated and diversified level on the global stage uh, with regard to the goods and ser- exchange of goods and services. Thank you. That's a, that's a great answer. And, and yes, uh, equitable position for the continent in geopolitics or even in uh, in the world at large. Um, that would be a, a great outcome, if you like, for our children, if not for us um, in our time. But um, uh, Rebecca, it just leaves me to say uh, thank you very much for taking part uh, in this research and and on this podcast it's been fascinating listening to you and, uh, and and listening to your perspectives on climate change ad- climate ad- adaptation in in africa and and to the your 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 fund's work across different um territories on the continent so uh, thank you very much for joining us and all the best over the coming uh year or two um as we uh, watch with interest the the outcomes that your fund delivers on the ground in Africa. Thanks, Boko. It was my pleasure. Join us at the Africa Climate Tech and Investment Summit in February, part of Africa Tech Summit Nairobi, where African tech connects. Please visit africatechsummit.com forward slash Nairobi for more details and use discount code GREEN, that's G-R-E-E-N, and receive a discount off delegate passes. To hear our latest episodes, please subscribe to our channel on your favorite podcast app. You can also visit africatechsummit.com for our upcoming events and news.